Hello, Legal Talk Network listeners. This is executive producer, Lawrence Coletti. What you're about to hear was recorded from the San Diego County Bar Association at their monthly Tech Tuesday. The featured speakers were member technology officer Adriana Linares and guest Dan Lear presenting and answering questions about the five important trends that solo and small firms should be paying attention to in technology. But before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsor for making this production possible, courtfiling.net. E-file court documents with ease in California, Illinois, Indiana, and Texas. If you file in Los Angeles Superior Court, you know that e-filing has recently become mandatory, and courtfiling.net is there to help. To learn more, visit courtfiling.net to take advantage of a free 30-day trial. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the San Diego County Bar Association's Tech Tuesday. I'm Adriana Linares. I'm the member technology officer. Behind me is our speaker. He's behind me, right? Uh, I'm really excited to have Dan Lear here today. Uh, Before I let Dan talk to us about five important trends that solo and small firms should be paying attention to in technology, I want to remind you that as a member of the San Diego County Bar, you have the opportunity to come and meet with me and chat with me, whether it's here at the Bar Center or uh, online. So please um, email me or look for a link on the sdcba.org website to to make an appointment and come and talk to me about your technology questions and your practice management questions. It's my job. And um, part of my job is to help bring good, uh, relevant, and exciting speakers to the bar. And I've definitely done that with Dan Lear, who's a dear friend of mine and really just one of the brightest, smartest guys in in legal technology these days. And I know Dan will tell you a little bit about himself. And then... um, That's it. And then we'll ask questions at the end. For those of you online, if you have questions that you want to ask Dan, please just input them into the chat online, and um, I will ask him those at the end when we do our hashtag AMA. Here we go. Thanks, Adriana. The management consultant Peter Drucker said, the steam engine reached its greatest social impact around 1840. I'm going to go nerdy on you for a minute, so stay with me. This is kind of a long quote. Uh, With the railroad and the steamship. But technologically, it was completed about almost 60 years earlier. After 60 years, the speed of progress of any technology slows down very sharply. But that is when its social impact begins to gather momentum and steam. But Drucker didn't only talk about the steam engine. He actually talked about sort of what was happening in the information revolution today. And he said, I expect by the year 2020 to see the end of gee whiz high tech and the beginning of the information society. And so I wanna walk you through sort of what, what he was saying. And so again, I've got my nerdy sort of slide up here. And he was saying that the, the technology as it related to the steam engine was actually completed in 1780, but it didn't have its fullest sort of impact on society until almost 60 years later. And then Drucker went on to make an analogy to our day. The technology that we see for computers or for the information age, most of, it, most of what really powers sort of all of this technology that we see today, it was completed uh, in, in kind of the middle part of the last century. Uh, and as Drucker said, around 2010, I predict that we'll get sort of to the same point we were at at 1840, which is that the pace of technological innovation slows down, and we can talk about that, but that is when the full social impact of this technology is brought to bear on uh, our society. And that's what I wanna talk to you about today. And specifically, I wanna give you, uh, Adriana promised five things. I I went with two risks and three opportunities. So it's five altogether, but um, not five in a row. So so sorry about that. If if you you wanna leave now, if you came for five, you can hang up. I think it's a total of five. Again, I'm not, I'm a lawyer, so, so my math is not strong, but. So uh, as Adriana said, my name is Dan Lear. Uh, I run a legal technology consulting firm called Right Brain Law. Um, And you can see my branding is strong there. It's kind of pretty consistent throughout. Uh, I have done a bunch of things. I am a a Washington State licensed attorney. I was a technology attorney for a number of years. And then for about the last four years, I worked for a company called Avo, 
that is uh, a marketplace or a website or directory or the scourge on legal humanity, depending on where you uh, where you come from. I can say that now because I don't work for them anymore. And I don't actually think that, but I have had many discussions about that uh, sort of along those lines. But now I, I do work like this independently and I work for a number of different companies kind of at this intersection uh, of law and technology. But I spend a lot of time talking to lawyers about technology, Adriana and other folks like that sort of uh, bring me into these kinds of conversations. And I'm, I'm really pleased to be here in, in sunny San Diego uh, talking with all of you and those of you on the internet as well. I'm glad that you're there too. Don't, I haven't forgotten about you. So I want to talk about two big risks that I see that, um, that lawyers or the legal sector face as a result of this um, rapidly transforming landscape. Uh, and then, like I said, we'll talk about three opportunities as well. So the two risks that I want to start out with uh, are privacy slash security. That's one risk. Um, and then irrelevance. And that one sounds pretty scary, but I, I've got some, got some cleanup at the end that I think will make that sound less intimidating. So I, uh, I threw all my branding there in front of you a few slides ago. But by show of hands, who noticed the domain extension on my website? Was it, uh, who thought, who saw, who saw it as .com? Who thought it was .com? We got one bunch of people not paying attention or too scared to participate. Um, who saw .co? Okay, we got one .co. Uh, other people were, weren't paying attention. That's all right. I won't judge. You're busy people. I get it. Uh, <laughs> maybe people didn't even know that .co existed. Um, it is .co, by the way. And we were having this conversation earlier because whoever has uh, rightbrainlaw.com, if you're out there, I'm coming for you. <laughs> um, but uh, did you know that there are actually domain extensions now .law? Uh, and dot .legal. So let me tell you a story about domain extensions and, and email spoofing. So uh, on the left, the, the relatively younger fellow is a guy by the name of Jordan Couch. He's a good friend of mine. He uh, lives in Seattle, works in Tacoma, and he works for the Palace Law Firm, uh, which is the, the logo I've got there in the middle, and that's his boss on the right, Patrick Palace. And so Jordan was telling me a story the other day that he received an email from Patrick that said, hey, uh, wire money to this account or refund our client the following amount of money or whatever. And uh, he got this email from uh, the email there on the bottom. Uh, and I don't know, at first glance, if I got an email from the partner that I worked for that said, hey, wire this money this way, like I probably wouldn't have questioned it. Um, but if you look closely, uh, the, the bottom one actually has an O in there, uh, where their domain is actually, and I actually don't know if it's Palace Law, to be honest. I made this up, but this was what he told me is, is the case. They, uh, there, was, there was an O thrown in there in the place of the A, which, again, to me, is, is pretty sneaky. And this is, this is a real thing that happened to, uh, to my friend Jordan. And so I don't know if you folks are seeing this kind of thing. I was, I mean, I get these like phony Apple emails every so often or like the, the Chase Bank where the domain is like Chase at blah, 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 blah. And they're usually not in very good English. So, or, or the, the, the grammar isn't great. Um, thank, thank my mom and my legal education for being able to not fall prey to phishing scams. But I thought this was, this was really um, pretty interesting. And, and Jordan has actually received a few of these different kinds of, um, of emails. And so now what he does every time he gets these or frequently if it seems somehow funny, he'll actually like text his, <laughs> his boss Patrick and be like, hey, did you just send me this email to tell me to pay this money? Because uh, spoofers and, and fishers are getting really sneaky about the way that they um, do some of these activities. So what can you do? And we'll I'll sort of already started talking about number three, but we'll start with number one. So what can you do uh, about this new landscape of privacy? The first thing that I always say um, is please, 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 for a variety of reasons, do not use commercial email for your legal work. Um, and, and if you don't know what commercial email is, I'm talking about Gmail, I'm talking about Hotmail, I'm talking about Yahoo, whatever that is, you can invest money. Uh, I use uh, the G Suite for, uh, for my work, uh, which is the Google equivalent of, of um, kind of the Microsoft Outlook Office 365 stack. You can use Office 365 as well. But you should, it costs me $10 a month. Um, you should pay the money to have 
to have a profession. And, and, and the reasons are A, it's just more professional, frankly. Like if you're, if you're exchanging email with a client, it really looks a lot better for it to be on your own domain. Frankly, it also gives you a lot of control. And I have not used Office 365, so I can't speak to that. But if you, uh, as um, a partner, if you, or, or even an owner of a firm, if you hire anyone, be they associates or be they uh, staff or whatever, you can automatically and really easily provision them with a new email address and a new Google Drive sort of, and it, I mean, it's like instantaneous. And if you, the, the beauty again, this is, and this is, I know the cloud is not new, but I just as I've sort of become my own boss and I've been looking at this kind of stuff, um, the beauty is if you, if you insist that all of the work product ends up in the Google Drive, the online drive, if they ever leave, if, if anything ever happens, all of the material is there and accessible to you. You don't have to go hunt their computer down. You don't have to do anything like that. So there's just a wide variety of reasons. Um, the, the other huge reason is I, I still think there are at least relevant attorney-client privilege issues with, with using commercial email. Um, when you use Gmail, and I've heard people say it this way, when you use Gmail, when you use Hotmail, you are the product. Yes, you're getting it for free, but that's because they are, they are combing through your email and giving you contextual ads based off of what they find. Um, now, whether or not they are actually reading your email, whether or not it is exposing attorney-client privileged information, that, that's a discussion for a different time, but like, to me, that just like sort of, <laughs> there's a baseline level of expectation of privacy that I think clients should, should have. And to me, these, these services just don't meet it. And it's so easy to, to buy a domain and get yourself set up. So the next thing I wanna say, and I didn't talk about this, but this, this would actually get to the issue I talked about with Patrick and Jordan, is embracing client portals. Um, and, and I put grudgingly on there because I have actually been a skeptic of client portals for a really long time. Now, I don't know if you folks know what that means, but like, um, I'm, I'm sure with your bank, a lot of times when your bank sends you an email, they send you a, an email that says, hey, we sent you an email. Log into your account to actually see what we sent you. And a lot of uh, particularly practice management companies are moving in this direction, your Clio's, um, your My Cases. They have uh, portals either whether, where you can leave documents or theoretically interact with your clients. And what this does is ensures that you're not getting spoofed from some random other individual. You know, someone could, could, could spoof your client's email very easily and say, uh, hey, I want my retainer returned or whatever. I'm firing you, right? And, and send the money to this account and you don't know any better. Um, but if all the interaction is through a secure client, client portal, the likelihood, now again, there, nothing is fail safe, but the likelihood that you're gonna run into a problem like that is much lower. And there are increasingly, especially with the cloud, lots of ways that you can get access to these kinds of technologies. And again, Adriana would be a great resource for you if you want to figure out how to set up a client portal for your firm. That's one of my favorite topics. There you go. I, again, grudgingly. And, and the reason I say grudgingly is just because I'm not convinced it's a great consumer experience. I, you know, I, again, like I said, I hate, I hate it when my bank sends me an email. It's like, it's like, it's like the old AOL. You've got mail, right? And then I got to go someplace else to find out. But I think when we're dealing with uh, material that is so important and uh, should be so highly protected, and I think, I think people are getting used to interacting on these platforms as opposed to through email. So, um, so I, think it's, I think it's something important. And then finally, kind of this, and this really speaks to the example I shared a minute ago, which is just be security-minded, right? If you get an email that seems even marginally fishy, no pun intended, there's no reason uh, that you can't, you know, give your client a phone call, call up the partner and say, hey, I just got this, it seemed funny. Can we just make sure before I go and make a decision here, having two signatories be required for checks, right? Thinking about what kind of um, encryption you use. And most of these services, be they Office 365 or G Drive, um, have pretty good encryption. But, you know, thinking about what kind of encryption you use on your computer. And I, Again, I don't. I personally am kind of believe in more openness and flexibility. Another great one is uh, I, I and Adriana tried to turn me onto this years ago, and I finally only recently come around. Use a password manager. The one I use is Dashlane. I think you like LastPass, right? Or I'm a one? Roboformer. Okay, Roboform. But doesn't matter. Yeah. Whatever, just pick one and use it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a great. So and they just automatically generate complex passwords for you. I think I paid like sixty bucks for three years, and I was one of those persons, who, one of those people who really doesn't like paying for this stuff. But like, it's, first of all, it's made my uh, signing into <laughs> all sorts, even old 
services that I've totally forgotten about. Um, it's made that process a lot easier uh, because I don't, ha I don't have to remember, oh wait, you know, when did I create that? Was, I, was that right after my second son was born? So I was using his name or which, you know, which date? Oh, and have I had to change that to my second most common used password? Like it's just worth the money and it, and it, it gives you a much greater level of security. So you're not using the same password across 50 different services. So just that sort of notion of security mindedness, I think is really important for attorneys. Okay, the second risk I wanna talk about is irrelevance. So who here is familiar or online, like I won't be able to see you, but like shake your hands in the air or something. Who, who here has heard of eSports? People know of eSports, okay, we got two, awesome. The three, three we got eSports. Okay, uh, I, well, we don't, I'm not gonna have you come up at the moment, but eSports is, so this used to be what happened when sort of you got bullied by your older sibling. Um, and this is now a money-making <laughs> venture, so and I'll, I'll explain what I'm saying in a minute. Esports is people paying money to watch other people play video games. Um, which, again, like I said, like this is what happened when your older brother beat you up and took the Nintendo controller from you, and so you sat there next to him and watched him play, but now people are paying for that privilege. Twitch was, or well, it still is, it's now part of Amazon, a, a, an esports streaming service uh, where, again, people paid for the privilege to watch other people play video games. It was sold for almost a billion dollars to Amazon, which, like, that blows my mind. And if uh, another time, maybe I'll come and I'll, we'll talk about niche practice areas. There's a, a law practice in Seattle where I live that is focused purely on the esports business, which I think is a fascinating, uh, interesting niche practice area to begin with. But Twitch was sold to Amazon for almost a billion dollars, I think demonstrating the value of this, uh, of this space, but also demonstrating that the folks who built uh, Twitch knew what they were doing in the new economy. Well, the founder of Twitch was a guy by the name of Justin Can. Uh, and Justin has since left Amazon uh, very happily, I imagine, uh, with, with a lot of money. Um, and he's turned his attention to the legal sector. Uh, he started a company called Atrium Legal Technology Services. And Atrium is a very, very interesting business. Um, I, I can nerd out about this for a while, but let me just tell you quickly what they've done. They have formed separately both a law firm and a technology company. And they have done this to try to avoid accusations of fee splitting between these two entities. Um, the law firm is very, and I'm, this is very roughly speaking, it licenses the technology from the technology company. And what this allows the technology company to do because it is an entirely separate entity is that it can raise venture capital money. So again, we can get really into the weeds here. But, but the macro point that I want you to understand is this is a really smart person with a lot of resources and a real aptitude for technology who is turning his sights on the legal sector and looking for opportunities to change the way legal services get, get delivered. And why I sort of bring up this risk of irrelevance is this. This is one very notable example, but there are many in which um, a wide variety of different companies or innovators or entrepreneurs are sort of looking around at the economy for sectors that haven't yet seen a lot of technological ad adoption, where, um, where there remains a pretty big gap in information between buyers and sellers. And legal services is not maybe one of the last, but it's certainly one of the few that are remaining standing where technological adoption as far as how consumers find lawyers, how they access lawyers, how they access legal information, it all still seems very, very opaque. And there are a lot of companies that are, and entrepreneurs that see this opportunity where, where lawyers, for the most part, or a lot of them make a lot of money and that their, their margins are, are quite healthy. And so there are a lot of innovators who are turning to the space and saying, what kinds of opportunities might be here for us to grow and scale a really interesting business? And now to be clear, I think there is so much room in this market for folks like Atrium and for traditional legal services providers. But we must understand what's happening in the broader ecosystem and we must adapt. Because if Atrium is delivering very sort of slickly developed easy, convenient. I mean, look, think of all of the services we use today, whether it's Amazon Prime or Uber or Airbnb or anything. Think of how convenient those services are and then think of 
Think about whether the services you deliver, or maybe the last time you hired a lawyer, if you don't want to think about your own, was it as easy to interact with you or was it as easy to interact with them as it is to interact uh, with some of these other services? And I think that will increasingly be the bar. And if consumers can find services that are really easy and really convenient and right in their face, they're gonna go with that instead of some other option. Uh, particularly for things that are easy or small or, or not particularly um, risk-laden. And so I think we really run a pretty significant risk of not necessarily losing out, but just becoming irrelevant because we're not meeting consumers where they are in the same way some companies uh, are, like, uh, like Atrium. Now, what can you do about it? I'm gonna, I'm gonna get back to that one. Oh yeah, if you wanna ask a question, come on up to the mic, because I, I think we wanna make sure everybody out here. But, uh, but I'll definitely come back to this, but it looks like we've got a question here, which I'm more than happy to take. Just curious, what does Atrium do? They, they have started out in uh, venture capital financing, and they're actually only doing work in the state of California. Um, so venture financing for startups, effectively. But, uh, and and I, I think in order to get the kinds of returns like they saw with Twitch, they're going to have to expand beyond that eventually. But right now, they're just in uh, venture financing for, for startups. All right, so now off of the scary stuff and hopefully to some fun, more interesting ideas about how, how you can be relevant, um, how you can solve this problem uh, of irrelevance or at least begin to address it. And the things I want to talk about are the future of trust. I want to talk about data and I want to talk about customer centricity. All right, so there's lots of buzz about the blockchain. Um, and lots of buzz about Bitcoin. And uh, I even have debates sometimes with other folks in the legal sector sort of who, who sit at this, uh, <laughs> as I say to my wife, all three of us who sit here at the intersection of law and technology <laughs> and, and care about this kind of thing. Um, there's lots, I've had debates with them about sort of what the meaning of blockchain is and whether it's been underhyped or overhyped or Bitcoin. I'm sure most people know what Bitcoin is, right? That's, that one's pretty hard to miss. Um, have you heard the term blockchain? Have most people heard the term blockchain? I'm seeing nods. Okay, do most people more or less understand what it is? No, yes, I see some yeses, I see some noes. This is my simplistic uh, explanation, and hopefully this is helpful. Um, and I trace this back to a technology that made at least a little more sense to me, which is Napster, right? So Napster was awesome, right? Uh, basically what happened is I uploaded all of my music to some central location, and then someone else, came to that same central location and grabbed copies of, their, of that music and brought it down to their computer, okay? Uh, and I was a technology lawyer back in the day. I don't have a techno technological background. So this is, I feel like I know enough to be dangerous, but sometimes not enough to be helpful. So don't really listen to this, but hopefully this metaphor is helpful for you. Um, so that proved problematic. That model proved problematic for a number of reasons. But not to be outdone, folks who wanted free music to share on the internet, one of the innovations that they thought of was this notion of BitTorrents. And I don't know if you folks know how BitTorrents work, but basically that was the next iteration of Napster. And what, what a BitTorrent does basically is you upload your music to a central location, but then that central location quickly breaks that data up and puts it in like a million different places. But it also has the code to reassemble that, that music when someone wants it and then send it to their computer. And so what that did is it made it a lot harder for the government to go to Napster or for a company to go to Napster and be like, hey, you're the central location. You've got all that data on your servers, like shut it down. They're like, well, we don't have it. It's everywhere, right? So, and again, this, this is where we get to the, to the definition of Bitcoin, uh, at least in my opinion, this is how I think about it and what the blockchain is. So the, the blockchain is effectively that same idea of distributing information in a bunch of different places and then bringing it back. The big innovation, however, is that because of, again, algorithms and the kind of computing technology we have access to, like we're not just playing with music files, MP3s anymore. We can now, with a relatively high level of certainty, we can come to some kind of, you heard, hear this term in the blockchain space, consensus. Right? We can all agree about certain activities that happen in this kind of electronic space, if that makes sense. So instead of just reassembling a music file, we're now reassembling the exchanging of unique assets. That's kind of how I think about it. I don't know if that's helpful to you. But to, to take it a, a step back, 
what I analogize this to and why I think it is incredibly relevant for lawyers is notaries. So notaries in the United States, um, in, in many other countries, lawyers are also notaries. And in fact, in many cases, those words are, in, are interchangeable in many other languages. But what does a notary do, right? A notary is the person who stands between two people who otherwise don't trust each other and says, you can trust this person and you can trust this person. Well, that's exactly what the blockchain is doing, except it doesn't require anyone to stand in the middle. It says, hey, here's a thing that we all agree happened. You know, money was moved. Dan said someone owns this. Uh, Dan acquired this asset, whatever it is. Here's this thing that we all agree happened. And again, this is not the exact role that lawyers play in our society, but it's pretty darn near, right? When you go into a situation and you don't trust another party, what do you want? You want a contract. You want some kind of legally binding instrument that says, hey, we all agree that this is the way things are gonna go and we, we know this because it says it in this contract. And what I, what again, what I think if we wanna take it up another level, what I think is, is really the most interesting thing is it, it sort of changes the way we think about trust in our society. And again, lawyers and the court system and the legal system have been major agents of trust in our society. And so, really understanding how these kinds of technologies are gonna change the way we trust and rely upon each other is really, really important. So that was kind of my high level, um, my high level one. And I don't, I, uh, I do have some good suggestions, some specific suggestions for you on the next couple. But you know, as far as blockchain, I would just say, this is something that is really key, if, if only to understand, um, lawyers understand, because I mean, there's, there, and I see lawyers right now uh, opening up practices in blockchain or Bitcoin. And I think that's an interesting opportunity as well. But again, just simply understanding that we now have this technology that creates this trust um, where otherwise wouldn't have existed and that that was a central role of the legal sector is really important. So the second thing I wanna talk about is data. And I, I don't know if you guys have, have heard this, you know, a lot of people are talking about sort of the increasing value of data, both for good and bad, uh, to be honest. But we are now awash in uh, massive amounts of data, right? This is what Facebook is using to, to give us certain advertisements. It's what Google's using to serve us those ads for our email. It's what there are data brokers and heavy data analysis going on about how people behave and the things they do. And we walk around with these devices that, that tell people where we are at any given time. And there's all of this uh, massive, these are just these massive amounts of data that we now both can aggregate and analyze. Now, for some larger firms, uh, kind of understanding, I, I had a friend who a number of years ago actually was working on a project to consume all of the billables for a large firm and then do some data analytics on that to figure out sort of where were they overcharging, where were they undercharging, where were their opportunities, that sort of thing. If you work at a large firm, that may be something you want to explore. But I imagine a lot of you are solo or small firm attorneys. And data analytics for you is actually really easy. Um, and I sort of jokingly say this sometimes, but I think data analytics for small firms, it starts with counting. Um, it doesn't, you don't need to know any fancy mathematical equations. You don't need to understand data analysis. Again, as, as lawyers, I think a lot of times we at least are not naturally inclined. It's not anything we were ever taught in law school that uh, kind of how to look at the, at the numbers that our business generates and how to make decisions about them, or even to collect that information. I was talking to a law practice management advisor who said she has clients that are months behind in just getting their bills out and getting their time recorded. And like, I won't even talk about the business implications of those kinds of decisions, but to just begin to count the things that happen in your law practice is a great way to begin to collect the data that will then enable you to make smarter decisions about your practice. So whether it's where, you know, and, and really trying to be specific about this. I think even marketers at big companies throw up their hands a lot of times and say, we don't know whether our marketing is working, but beginning to just ask yourself the question of, to what extent can I know? How much more can I know? Is it visitors to my website? Is it the email that I send out? Is it the networking that I do? How are those clients, for example, coming to me and how much are those clients worth? Just basic, basic information about kind of 
how your law practice works will enable you to make better decisions. And the next point I wanted to make is lawyers with data will win. So uh, I was at, uh, I don't know if folks are Clio users in here. I know Adriana is a big, big Clio fan, but Clio uh, is a law practice management uh, technology and they throw a big party every year called the Clio Cloud Conference. And I went to that uh, a couple of weeks ago and there was a fellow by the name of Ed Walters who runs uh, Fastcase, which is a legal research company, talking about data and kind of pitching the importance of this uh, understanding data and how kind of the, the, what types of impacts it can have on our practices. And, uh, and so Ed was up there talking for like 45 minutes. He, he gave what I thought was a really compelling speech. And then a guy raised his hand um, in the audience and said, yeah, I just wanna share a quick story with you. So he's like, I run a personal injury firm. We've got, I think he said like, you know, six people, handful of lawyers and some staff. And he said, there was this particular type of settlement, I don't recall what it was, or I don't even know if he said it, but there was this particular type of settlement where we really felt like we were getting, our claims were getting under-evaluated by the assessors, right? Like, like we felt that they were worth more and we just really felt like we were just continually getting less than we thought we deserved. And he said, so what we did for a year or two years was we just collected a bunch of data on kind of where these, these uh, claims were falling, both uh, out in the world and also at our firm. And it turned out that the number overall, the average was much higher than they had been getting, or at least it was much closer to what they thought they were worth uh, than, they, than they had initially been getting. And so, so once they sort of got, had this data, they started coming back into the, uh, the meetings with the, with the claims adjusters and saying like, no, listen, we have statistics that prove that the claim is worth this. And the adjusters had no argument for that. They had no, and again, it seems simplistic. You'd think the adjusters, the adjusters would have this, but he said, we, we started coming with this data and we started getting <laughs> increased case values. And so data is increasingly persuasive in our society and it's available. It's really not that hard to collect. And again, like, like I said, sort of even, even with this little example, lawyers with data often will win uh, more than those who don't have it. And then finally, this is just my sort of last nerdy uh, uh, push here. And I, again, I don't, I don't claim to understand this stuff uh, particularly well either, but I think we all would benefit from a better understanding of statistics. Um, and standing here in front of you on election day, <laughs> uh, no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, I think many, many people, maybe, maybe not all, but certainly a lot of the pundits and the people who suggested that they knew uh, what the outcome of the 2016 election would be uh, were proven wrong. And I've read a little bit about this. And what they said is, and I think this is so important, I think this is so important. What they said is, just because we, we said a given outcome was more likely than not, it doesn't mean that the unlikely things don't happen, right? And I think that is such a fascinating insight. And in fact, they said, un thing things that we don't expect to happen, happen all the time. And so we need to understand better sort of what probabilities mean because I believe as we get a better handle on the data that is coming out of our judicial system, people are going to make courts, legislators, whomever it is, are going to make decisions that affect lawyers' livelihoods based off of, off of statistics. And so understanding statistics better will benefit us um, greatly. Hello, listeners. This is Lawrence Coletti again, sneaking in to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Audio engineers, please cue the music. This episode of On the Road is brought to you by courtfiling.net, your solution for electronic filing in California, Illinois, Indiana, and Texas. Courtfiling.net provides a better e-filing experience so you can spend more time helping clients. Because they know that sometimes work happens after hours and you know who you are, courtfiling.net offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit them at courtfiling.net to receive 30 days. That's 30 days of unlimited free electronic filings and see how you too can e-file court documents with these. We now return to our Tech Tuesday presentation for the San Diego County Bar Association. And finally, the, the last thing I wanna talk about is uh, customer centricity. And I think of this as the an antidote to irrelevance. And this is another sort of big idea. Um, Amazon and Jeff Bezos have been sort of 
viewed as being big advocates of this notion of customer centricity. But I actually think, again, for, for solo and small firms, there are a lot of simple things that you folks can do, like tomorrow, that will help you become more customer centric and actually sort of be relevant to your clients and in, in today's economy. And so I wanna just give you three examples. The first thing I wanna talk about is embracing the review economy. Having worked for Avo for, for a number of years, you know, I would get in front of groups of lawyers, I'm sure not lawyers like you, but um, other lawyers, and I would sort of try to paint this picture of, here's where the legal sector is going, and here are the things that you need to be aware of, or like, here's blockchain. And they'd be like, okay, Dan, that's great, but I wanna talk about that negative review that I have on your website, <laughs> and um, how, you're, how you're gonna take it down for me tomorrow. Um, and I'm totally happy to have that conversation. In fact, I'll, I'll jump into that just for a moment. But folks, the ship has sailed. Um, if any of, any, any of you want today to go claim danlear.sucks and write a screed about my presentation or the content that I brought today, there is nothing I can do to stop you. I mean, maybe I can say you're infringing on my name, but like it, finding you if you move to Malaysia or wherever and you hide, like uh, there's nothing I can do. That's definitely a worst case scenario. Might a client say, and listen, I have trolls. There was a guy who was following me around on a bunch of the publications that I was writing on and uh, he would write in the comments, I assume it was a he, maybe it was a woman. Um, you know, Dan's not a lawyer. He doesn't know what he's doing. He never really practiced. Like he's a phony, blah, blah, blah. Like I, I, I have lived this too. So like, and, and I'll say uh, my wife and I rent, rent our basement out on Airbnb. And occasionally people say unkind things about our house. And again, I know it's different than legal, but it's not entirely different. And so we need to understand that like people are going to say things and people are going to give us feedback. And that's exactly what I want you to remember. People are going to give us feedback about our professional activities. And a lot of lawyers just want to either make the internet go away or they want to pretend it doesn't exist. Um, and I just don't believe that we have the opportunity to, to either make it go away or pretend it doesn't exist uh, any longer. And if you do get a negative review, just as a, as a quick aside, um, here's just my quick pitch for what you should do. The first thing you should do is you should respond. I absolutely recommend that you respond. Do I recommend that you respond right away? Well, that's where you need to check yourself and make sure you're in the right frame of mind to do it. But I absolutely recommend that you respond. How do you respond? Well, the first thing you do is you say thank you. And you know why? Because this is someone who has taken time out of their day to tell you how you can improve your services. Now, again, it may sting a little bit. They may be 90 to 95% wrong, but somewhere in there, there's a gem of information that you can take away that will help you improve the way that you deliver legal services. The next thing you do is you apologize. And you do not have to apologize for the outcome, right? If they're complaining about the way things shook out, um, you don't have to apologize for you know, anything else that's related to the law, but you can apologize and say, hey, we strive to, uh, to have a level of customer service at our firm, and it appears that that level was not met in, in this case. And I'm sorry about that, right? You're not saying I'm a bad lawyer. You're not saying uh, we failed in court, none of that. You're simply saying, hey, this is what we aimed for, and we clearly didn't meet it. And then I honestly recommend that you offer a remedy. And I have seen some lawyers on public Facebook say, contact me and I'll give you a full refund. Now, I'm not recommending you do that. That's up to you. But you can absolutely say, please contact me and let me know if, if there's a way that we can make this right. And you know what? The reason that you're doing this is not to salvage that customer, right? That, that client is probably lost to you, but you're doing it for the five or 10 or dozens or hundreds of people who are gonna see this negative review and they're gonna be like, hmm, is this true or what? Or, you know, is this person really this way? And then they're gonna read your response and they're gonna see that you're not reactive, that you don't get angry when, when you know, the chips are down, when things aren't going your way. They're, they're gonna see that you're an honest, hardworking person and that you're, you're striving to, to make customers happy. And that's gonna, that's gonna go a long way. I also highly recommend that lawyers ask for feedback. Um, and you can do this any number of ways. You can leave a, a link in your footer that says, hey, are you happy with, your, with our services? Uh, leave us a review on, on Avo or Google or whatever your preferred platform is. Um, there are companies, one of, the, one of which is BirdEye, there are many. Uh, I think Podium is another, that actually help you aggregate and like, they make it really a lot easier for customers to leave you reviews, clients to leave you reviews. 
So you can, you can use a company like that. There's also a very interesting, uh, and I won't go into this in great detail, but um, there's been a bunch of, of research from Harvard Business School around customer satisfaction. And there's one score, one question that, uh, that sort of business professors and management professors say sort of indicates overall satisfaction. And this is how likely would you be to recommend my services to someone else? That's called net promoter score. And you can, you can do the internet deep dive on all of that, but it's one question, one question. Um, that can tell you a wealth of information about how you can run your practice more effectively. So I, I recommend that you ask for feedback. And then finally, the purpose of business, and this is another Peter Drucker quote, and I'm going to come back to him in a minute. The purpose of business is to create a customer. I do think to some extent, and, and I think it's not always our fault as lawyers, sometimes we think we are in business to lawyer. Um, we think that we exist because who would write the briefs or the contracts or <laughs> argue them uh, if we didn't do it? And the reason we exist, and, and the reason, and I know there's been some recent uh, changes in California, but the reason that many bar associations enjoy self-regulation um, is to protect consumers. And so the reason we exist is to help people with their legal issues, to deliver legal services to them. And so, Please, just as you think generally about why your law firm exists, um, I've heard other people say, like, if your law firm disappeared tomorrow, would anyone know or care or, or would it matter? Or would they, would they notice? And if the answer to that question is no, then I think that's a great place to start to figure out how can I run my practice in a more customer-centric way. So in summary, the risks are privacy, uh, security, irrelevance and to some extent neglect. I know I didn't really hit on that one, but it's this notion, like I said, it's the flip side of customer centricity. The opportunities though are thinking about these new, these new notions of trust, um, thinking about data and how we can use data more effectively in our practices and ultimately thinking about customer centricity. And I wanna finish where I began with Peter Drucker because uh, after he said that, after he said, I expect by the year 2010, to see the end of the gee whiz high tech and the beginning of the information society, he said this, and this is, what I th this is what gets me so jazzed about this space. The question will be, what will the dominant groups be like? What will they need to be able to function, to achieve, to contribute, and to set an example of a good society and a good life? And that I believe, that is like, that is, what, that is why I became a lawyer, because lawyers are the ones who interact with the rules of society. We are the ones who get to help decide sort of what will it mean to be a good person and to have a good life. And I think there are so many interesting and amazing opportunities at this intersection of law and technology if we as a profession can figure out how to harness this power and use it to help ourselves and to help our clients. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciated being with you. Um, here's information where you can track me down. If you would like a copy of the slide deck, um, you can just get it at that link there at the bottom. And I think we've got, what, like 15 minutes to do questions and answers. First of all, if any of you have any questions, please ask Dan. You don't even have to get up. I can repeat the question for people listening online. She will be your voice. I will be the voice. Uh, but I did want to say a couple things just as a side note, because I thought that many of your tips and suggestions were great, specifically on answering bad comments or reviews that we get online. But I did have a couple of notes that, you know, as a member technology officer, I could not pass up oh, on um, just talking a little further about secure client portals, because this is one of my big pushes uh, for the past couple of years and into the future. Mm. And you mentioned, did you say the bank or the doctor? I said the bank. Okay. Yeah. So how many of you, in, at least now in the audience, how many of you use secure client portals to communicate with your clients? Nobody. Okay. Oh, we don't, oh we you don't do? One. Great. We got a half. A little bit. Yeah. Do you use a modern practice management program that makes it easy for you to do that? Okay. So for, for everyone listening online, um, one of our attendees uses Clio, which is a great example for me to be able to talk about what a secure client portal is and why I think they're so important. Now, whether you use Clio or my case or um, Zola or whichever uh, one you use, all right? If you're using- Practice Panther, pra yeah, Bill for Time. All those. Yeah. Um, if you're using a modern practice management program, which is cloud-based, on top of the fact that it helps secure your own data, one of the things I think they do best is help you secure client communications. So in today's world, 
how do you communicate with your clients? Email, phone calls, and text messages. What do you think are the three least secure ways to communicate <laughs> with anyone today? Spoiler it, alert, it's the three she just said. <laughs> so exactly, the three ways that we all communicate with each other are the worst ways, as far as technology and privacy goes, to communicate. So. In the old days, when I would consult before the web was such an easy thing to use and practice management programs were so affordable, I would have to say to a small firm, it's going to cost you $8,000 to have a server, and even portals weren't that good back then. But today, for $60 a month per user with any of these programs, part of what you get are these secure client portals. And not only do they just create a secure communication location for you to exchange information, but I honestly think that with from the lifestyle approach of everyone trying to find work-life balance and not get so bombarded by emails, text messages, and phone calls, if you start moving your practice to a place where your clients are used to communicating with you through a portal, you're making it easier for yourselves, you're communicating with them in a, in a, a way that they're actually used to, because that's how I communicate with my doctor. I don't, I, I don't even wanna talk to my doctor. I wanna send him a note and I'll tell you, when I send him a note at seven o'clock in the morning, he's replied to me by nine o'clock in the morning. Now that's because one of the things he does is he gets in the office and he looks at the messages, but it's a lot more likely he's going to respond to me that way than getting in a line of phone calls, right? So any thoughts about secure client communications? Like are you inspired maybe to, to, to look at it? Yeah, question from... So the question is, have, we, have I used OneDrive for that? The answer is OneDrive isn't a portal for communications. It's a document storage and sharing location. So the best I can do with OneDrive, Google Drive, or Dropbox is put files into it, and my clients can upload and download documents. What I can't do there that you can do with a real portal is post messages send them calendar invites, send them contact information, and put my bill, I mean, yeah. you can put a bill on there. Alert them to the fact that you need to be paid. Yes, like right. Um, so or, that, or even have them pay you yeah. in said portal. Yeah, that's right. So that's the other benefit to the portal is it adds sort of text messaging and uploading and downloading um, documents a lot easier. And I know many of you are thinking, oh, my clients will never figure out how to use these portals. But I will tell you right now, if your clients can upload a picture of their brand new grandbaby to Facebook, they can use these portals. And, and I will just say, too, going back to the theme that I struck about how different... Oh, Adriana, you've left me now. No, I'm kidding. I'm teasing you. Um, uh, I do think because of some of these problems, but also because of companies' desires to keep communication on their own platforms you're getting more used to seeing people being comfortable with that, right? So they're being conditioned to go to those platforms to interact, right? You don't, you don't send bulk forwards, right? These people don't send bulk forward emails anymore. They spam me on Twitter, right? Or you go to Facebook Messenger to interact with your friends. Or when, again, when we use Airbnb, I don't do it through email. I, I usually go open the Airbnb app and I interact there. So people are being conditioned to do those kinds of things and expect those kinds of experiences. And again, like legal technology isn't quite there and it's harder for solo, solo and small firms to, to build an Airbnb-like experience. But with cloud-based practice management, you can, you can create a pretty good experience and people are conditioned to do that kind of thing. So I, I think they're, they might be more likely to use it than you expect. We have a question. Long story. What kind of programs are you using to, to leverage technology in your practice? For example, when I have a, a client come into my office and they say, well, you know, what's the best way to get you these documents that are at home? I show them the Scannable app uh, through Evernote. And, and awesome. it's a nice free app yeah. and they can easily upload PDFs uh, that way to an email. What other types of like technology are, are you using other than portal management. So the question from the gentleman was, what other technologies are you using or would you recommend for creating this environment for making it easier to work with or communicate with clients? And one of the things you said, which I think is so cool, is you actually show your clients how to use a scanner app on their phones mm -hmm. in order to be able to scan financial documents or something. And, and then how do they deliver those to you? Email or text, whatever? Yeah, usually email. Okay. We've been using my case sure. for practice management, and we've been using the portal almost exclusively. Oh, good. And it's made things a lot easier. 
So I just want to repeat what you said again for um, the members listening online. So um, you use my case, which of all the practice management programs, my case has always been known as having a really good client portal. And you also just said, since you've started using it with your firm, it's made things a whole lot easier. Testimonial. Um, and so then you were going to answer his question about what suggestions oh. you have. I have tons too, but I'm going to let Dan, right, the well, speaker, I'll, answer. So full disclosure, I'm not in active practice right now, although I'm looking potentially to start a law firm to do some really niche work. I think there's a wide variety of technologies. There's there's plenty of options. I'll just toss out a few that I think I think the intake space is really interesting. So um, Clio just acquired Lexicata, um, which I think is a, like – but there are other uh, there are other companies doing intake. Not quite as many. I, there's 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 fewer. Uh, in fact, uh, oh, Lawmatics yeah. uh, is a new one. Yeah, my case is the old my case founder, like San Diego. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, hometown. Um, Lexicata is really interesting. Lawmatics is interesting. And again, I know we've been pushing you away from email. Like, I think email marketing is a really interesting opportunity for attorneys. Like, if you are aren't, I would highly recommend that you save a lot of your email addresses for your clients in something like Mailchimp, and think about sending, getting them on an automatic drip, drip campaign or at least a semi-regular email from you. Just you know, I mean, even at the holidays and you know over the summer, just to sort of track what you're up to. Like, I think people underestimate lawyers in particular, the value of email addresses, it's still a really great way to drive business. And so if you don't have a central place and you can, you can save up to like a thousand email addresses in MailChimp for free, it's like a pretty robust program. I like that. And then I'll give one more shout out, a technology that I have been using recently and that I have absolutely fallen in love with is a company called x.ai. And they do, are you going to, you roll in your eyes? You're not a fan? No, I love it. Okay, uh, is Do a company. Do you use Andrew or? Oh, we can have that conversation. Ashley. I use I use Andrew. Tell them. <laughs> okay, yeah, I use Andrew. So, what well, do you want me to? Okay, well, so let me explain what it is, and I'll tell you why I use Andrew. It's an, an artificially intelligent bot that schedules meetings for you. People have said they don't like it because it's not perfect. I feel like it gets it right, eighty, maybe ninety percent of the time. No, no less often than a human might screw up. And I've had it scheduled probably 700 meetings since I started, and it is amazing. So the way it works, it's so simple too. 10 bucks, I think they're, they're now down to 10 bucks a month. I think it's eight, um, I just looked yeah. at it. So you sign up, you give them your email address, and uh, it takes like a little bit of getting used to, but not much. And let's say like Adriana and I are in different cities and we wanna set up a conference call. We often are. So I email Adriana and I say, Hey, and you know, usually we've, and you can do it on the end of a thread that's already been going. It doesn't have to be a new email. Um, you can just loop Andrew or Amy in, but you just loop in this, this email address that they give you. It's Amy or Andrew at x.ai. And you basically say, Hey, Amy, find 30 minutes for me and Adriana to talk next week. And, uh, and you can set defaults. So it asks Adriana for her phone number or Adriana gets sent my phone number. There's like, you can, you can set different times. You can, you can control all of the scheduling. And then Amy or Andrew will separately, completely uninvolved from me, email Adriana and say, hey, Adriana, Dan's available at 3 p.m. next Monday. Uh, does that work for you? And Adriana can say, no, that doesn't work. How about the following Tuesday or whatever? And again, 95% of the time, the AI is good enough to read it and adjust. And I've used it to schedule, they can schedule meetings up to four, including you, or maybe, no, five, including you. So like those, like that, uh, what's the scheduling tool that everyone uses that Schedule-y? I just- No, there's one where you Calendly. all- The one that everybody goes to and you like say, I'm free at this oh. time, I'm free at that time. Doodle. I hate doodle. I hate doodle. I hate doodle. This solves the whole doodle problem of like going out to this website, like it emails you and it says, you know, here's when they're available. I, I love it. And the price is like so low. And I, just to get to, the, to answer your question, when I, when I started out, I, you can use either Amy or Andrew and you can use them interchangeably, but they're like, there was this, and, and like, I was trying to be sensitive to this sort of emerging me too movement. And I thought, well, I can choose. It, it, initially, it felt more comfortable to me, and I'll just own this, like to have a woman handling my scheduling. And I, I was like, like having a man. And I yeah. My, and I thought, you know, schedules. let's stretch myself a little bit, and I'm going to use Andrew instead to like, you know, get yeah. myself out of that. So that's that's why I use Andrew. It's very cool. Yeah, huge fan. Oh, uh, we had a, a question here, and then one over there. The question is, um, are people using our large firms? Are large firms, but in particular, well, I mean, there was there was the two part question: are large firms using it? But then, are uh, 
our client portal is really a, um, a trick of the legal industrial complex just to sell more cloud services to lawyers. Um, I mean, part of what I hope I communicated today was that if you use a client portal, all of the spoofing that, that people can do with email, that becomes a much low, it's not perfect. You're never going to get a perfect system, but you get a system that's much more locked down. So when your client gets an email from uh, bakermckenzie.legal, that says, please wire me another $10,000 for uh, my retainer, right? Or Baker Mac, Kenzie, <laughs> M-A-C, dot C-O, or dot legal, or dot law. Like, maybe they, maybe they figure it out, but maybe they don't. Whereas if they get an email that says, log into your secure Baker McKenzie dot, your Baker McKenzie portal and interact with us there, like, the likelihood of there being a, a problem there is much lower. So I, I don't know whether, I, I do know this, Big firms are increasingly in insisting that their, um, or excuse me, big firms, clients, corporations right. are saying, we want you to use our technology. We want you to log into our systems and work with us there. Uh, so yeah, maybe they're not being, you know, they're not, they're not but, but they're definitely being asked to do that. The other, just one plug I want to put in for, for portals as well is it also centralizes, it, it lowers your risk, to be frank. I, I've made the argument before that, the, the, the analogy here is, and sorry, I'm totally going off no, on okay. this. The analogy here is um, Allstate who's asking you to plug something into your car so that they can follow you around and thereby arguably give you a lower insurance quote. If you use practice management, I can see a practice man or I can see a, a malpractice provider saying, you've got all your information in one place. If you die, get hit by a bus, whatever, all of your stuff is in one place. So it's much easier for someone to step into your shoes and pick up your practice and keep your clients well-served right away. So, and, and portals are integral to that, right? That's where all the communication is happening. So again, and I, again, I, I said, embrace client portals grudgingly. <laughs> like I am not 100% sure that it's the best customer experience, but when, there are so many data points now, particularly when you think about the fact that a lot of hackers are realizing that lawyers are the weak link oh. in the security chain, right? We're not particularly tech savvy. We're distributed, right? Our, our companies aren't big enough necessarily to, to require really robust security protocols. And, and a lot of hackers are, you know, as again, we see with the spoofing and other things, they're going after, after law firms. So anyway, I could go on and on, but I, I, I hear you but I think there are a lot of really good reasons to use those technologies. I want to answer your question because I've spent a lot of time in big law and still do today because I, you know, I, that's what I do. So the answer is big law firms want to use client portals because their clients are asking for portals. The problem is that typically right now, big firms don't have the same infrastructure that smaller firms do. So big firms do not have case management programs for the most part. They use a sophisticated document management system and they use Office 365. If they are a litigation firm, they use litigation support tools, but they literally do not use the time matters of the world before we had modern day practice management programs. Big firms have never used time matters. They've never used PC law. They've always just sort of used disparate systems focusing on time and billing and document management systems. So today, they're all struggling trying to figure out how to create a client portal with a sort of, um, I won't say it's outdated technology, but even <laughs> NetDocuments, which is a, a, a modern document management system, it has a document sharing service, but it doesn't have the portal in it. So I think what are big firms doing? I think they're trying to figure out how to create a secure client communication. Many of them, I think, are building that internally, which they'd be much better served, honestly, just paying for a couple of licenses or a few hundred mm -hmm. licenses of a very affordable cloud-based practice management program. So that's sort of the way I see it from the big firm, small firm world. And then I also think... This is the advantage that solo and small firms have in using technology that is so good mm -hmm. and so affordable um, that big firms are having a, a harder time just turning that corner because their infrastructure yeah. is so well, so it. embedded and deep. Another question. On back to the data issue and emails and websites, you know, putting footnotes on. California just recently had new legislation that basically mirrors GDPR. Uh -huh. Sure. And we're going to be moving forward into GDPR much more. 
can you, and maybe this is a topic for another day, but I'm just wondering how are, how do you see that going forward with the use of technology and us protecting our consumers' privacy issues beyond just the portal and sharing that with websites and emails? California, like many, like every other state in the union, has a data privacy law. And if there is a breach of data that impacts more than 500 residents of almost any state, but specifically in California, since we're in California, and by a breach that means, was your laptop or your iPhone or your desktop lost or stolen? And did that device have either directly on it or access to the PII, personally identifiable information, of more than 500 people? So before we even had the new privacy law from California, we've always had data breach and privacy laws to deal with, to start with, and lawyers haven't even gotten that far. Most lawyers don't even know that we have these laws. So what that means is, and you mentioned encryption. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Um, if any of your devices, and how many of you have at least 500 persons information, all, all, all lawyers do. Now I'm not a lawyer, but you know I know that you do because you have busy practices. So if your device is lost or stolen, you have to report that to the attorney general's office. And you have to go through this whole breach notification process, unless the safe harbor is if your device was encrypted or if the data was encrypted when it was lost, stolen, or it was inadvertently accessed by a third party. So first of all, we've had these things to deal with. So now we're layering on top of it how we're going to be using the, the data that, that comes from um, website visits and cookies. And I, and I think at this point, it isn't that hard to comply um, if you read you know, what we're doing with sort of basic levels. Um, but that's about as far as I can get you right now is I think if you start thinking about privacy and data security now and the way you're not only using that information from those people, but storing it. Lawyers have a habit, for some reason, I know you all love this, you keep data forever. You keep it forever. And the, the, the best business practice for data and privacy is do not keep data any longer than the business case allows it. So the example I'll give you is if your laptop got lost or stolen and you had to report that breach to the AG's office, which then also triggers a letter to all of the potential victims, you might have to send a letter to someone whose case you haven't worked on in 10 years. And you're gonna send a letter to a person that says, hey, um, <laughs> Your, your data may have been accessed. Remember me? Remember me? <laughs> yeah. So I think really where legal needs to get now in the, at, the, at the professional level is data storage, data disposal, data destruction, and best policies for how long you're holding on to that information. And then dealing with GDPR is going to become a, a little bit easier. I would just say, too, not to keep beating the drum for um, centralized cloud-based um, portals and, and CRM, but like... If you keep all your stuff in the cloud, it's going to be way easier to manipulate it. And I mean, in a good way, right? To like, I, I noticed like with MailChimp, they're already automatically kind of enacting GDPR protections. Like, cause again, like it's, it's, it's easier for them from a systemic standpoint to, to make something compliant than it is for you to go through all of your spreadsheets and different places that you may have in your Rolodex and wherever. Rolodex, Dan? No, I mean, like, lawyers, Rolodex. I imagine, still have, like, some of the stuff is, not, it may not always be. I'm just oh, saying. it is. Right. I'm just saying. And almost all of these um, systems have much greater encryption than, like, your password, which is some combination of your, you know, your child. Name, and yeah. yeah, exactly. So, again, you know, I would just say, make another plug for, A, those cloud-based systems, for the most part, are, are more secure. And both they, the systems, if they want to do business in the EU or even sounds like in California, they will build tools that will automatically make you compliant. And uh, it will make it easier for you if you need to make some kind of custom compliance arrangement because of the practice area you're in or whatever. Everything's in one place. So you just do it all to everything once, which is way easier than doing it on a piecemeal basis. What was the program that you recommended for saving passwords? Right, okay, recommended password managers. Um, I use RoboForm only because it's been around a really long time, but I think Dan uses Dashlane. I like Dashlane. Dashlane. Last, and, last pass? Yeah, I think the one three. password. Yep, Dashlane, OnePass. I'll put in a serious plug for RoboForm because it has a, got a brand new update yesterday or this week at some, some point where it actually is fully integrated now with the iPhone. So 
when I go to log on on my iPhone to either an app or a website, it connects to RoboForm now and has all my passwords in there. It was, a, it was a little hokier before, um, but now it's directly integrated, at least into iPhones. I don't know about Dashlane. No, it doesn't do that. Dashlane does not do that. Ha ha, yeah. win for you me. Win. You um, win, you win. Any other questions? Can you recommend where I could go to learn more potential about the blockchain? Oh. I'm in, so I'm in commercial real estate and we yeah. uh, are notoriously slow to adopt change. Yeah. But I well, can see huge benefits for the blockchain. You mentioned notary publics yep. and closing deals, especially nationwide, would be huge. Well, I mean, if you think about title registries, right? Like that is one of the most immediate places that... Um, that uh, oh, and we'll we'll let Lawrence give some some suggestions. I mean, I, I'll bet you honestly. Now there will be a lot of crap out there too, but it wouldn't take you long. You're a smart guy. Like, if you Googled like real estate blockchain opportunities, like there will be um, some good stuff. The one resource that I have found, and this is a super nerdy high level one, but just as far as understanding what the technology is, how it works, there's a. It's I think it's unenumerated.blogspot.com. And I know that is so crazy that I'm pointing you, but this, it's written by a guy by the name of Nick Sabo, who ironically is a computer programmer and a lawyer and is also believed, so Bitcoin was created by this paper that this anonymous person published named Satoshi Nakamoto. And no one really knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is, but one of the people who is most highly sort of believed to be Satoshi Nakamoto is this guy named Nick, Nick Sabo. And he blogs every so often on just these really deep topics on sort of like currency and blockchain and Bitcoin. But like, that's where I have found the best baseline information for what this technology means and like what its potential is. And he's a law, he's a law grad, by the way. So he brings that window so those, that is the place I would start. Um, another sort of rabbit hole to go down is exploring smart contracts. Um, there's, a whole there's this whole notion of smart contracts on the blockchain, which would have, or on blockchain, I know I'm not supposed to say the blockchain, but on blockchain, um, that, uh, that has some pretty interesting legal implications. So those would be my suggestions. Um, there is a lot of fluff and crap out there, but I think you'll be able to find the good stuff pretty quickly. And Lawrence has a good answer too, because Legal Talk Network does a lot of work with a company that does blockchain for legal. Yeah, so we work with a company called Integra Ledger, and they're big into the blockchain. So uh, they have a blockchain legal, or it's Global Legal Blockchain Consortium. There's a lot of active groups that get together and create products on their platform. So they would be a great resource to reach out to. Yep. Yeah, I would. Right. Yeah, and IBM's in it. Microsoft's in it. Um, a lot of financial services firms are experimenting with it. Anything that's coming out of entities like that, Google, you can feel pretty good is going to be like higher quality than crazycrypto.com or whatever. And for the listeners, it was Integra Ledger. Integra Ledger. Integra yeah. Ledger. That's right, Integra yeah, Ledger. Global Legal Blockchain Consortium, I think. Is yep. what, what well, is great. It? All right, I think we've kept you all here long yeah, enough. Definitely. Thank you everyone for staying the extra few minutes and everyone online as well. If you have any questions for Dan, his contact information is on the screen and you yep. can always reach me at MTO for Member Technology Officer, um, MTO at sdcba.org. Thanks everyone and see you next Text Tuesday. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.